Welcome to Let It Locate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. In his latest book, Symbols of Freedom, Slavery and Resistance Before the Civil War, Matthew J. Clavin tells a surprising story of how enslaved people and their allies drew inspiration from the language and symbols of American freedom. Although for enslaved people and their allies, the language and symbols that served as national touchstones made a mockery of freedom. Andrew Slavin is a professor of history at the University of Houston. His book is published by NYU Press, and he joins us now. Welcome. Welcome, and please call me Matt. You open your book by noting that for years, slave traders forced African Americans to walk in chains to Washington, D.C., and politicians rarely took notice. Was Washington considered a southern city at that time? Very much so. And in fact, there was a great debate early after the soon after the founding of the republic where do we put the united states capital and it, famously people said that you know it should be on wheels because it moved around from mm. philadelphia to new york city to annapolis and ultimately a compromise is reached with some of the founders and it's put in washington dc and you know geographically it's a great place when you had the 13 colonies the 13 the original 13 states you know, the Potomac River is kind of right in the middle. So so geographically, it makes sense. What didn't make sense is it was a swampland and nobody lived there. It was a couple of small Native American villages. Um, so for Southerners, slave owners, this was a very important point to them, that if we could get this uh, capital you know, surrounded by slave territories, you know, Maryland to the north and Virginia to the south, they really felt that this would help secure some of their power. And, and they were 100 percent right. And slavery was legal in Washington, D.C. Very much so. Yep. And, and even and, when it was illegal elsewhere in the country. For sure. And even when the Atlantic slave trade is abolished, 1807, 1808, the internal domestic slave trade not only continues across the southern United States, you know, Washington, D.C. sort of becomes a mecca because so many mm -hmm. slaves are being uh, sold from the upper south uh, to the deep south, to the cotton fields you know, of, of of Louisiana and Alabama and Eastern Texas and all that stuff. So Washington, D.C., it is, it is obviously it's a very important place uh, symbolically. And to have daily almost slave coffles, they were called, you know, groups of slaves chained together, being marched throughout the city. It, it was very offensive, obviously, to, you know, slaves allies, to northern politicians and, and, and foreign diplomats. They came to the nation's capital and they were they were literally sickened uh, by what they were forced to witness, not only the coffles, but slave auctions and slave prisons. Did things change shortly after the end of the War of 1812? Uh, only insofar as the United States changes. And, you know, when I teach early U.S. history, there's sort of this idea that, you know, post-Declaration, post-Treaty of Paris in 1783, that all is fine and well and and good in the, the New Republic. Uh, but it wasn't because Britain, you know, almost allowed the United States to win the American Revolution. France gets involved. It's very expensive. A lot of people at home in England are complaining about the cost in lives and treasure. And so it's really not until the War of 1812, it's really not until the Battle of New Orleans, that the United States finally, once and for all, frees itself of British tyranny. And so what you see after the War of 1812 is an era, it's really cool to study and read about, an era of supranationalism. And one thing I've learned in my lifetime is, you know, there are moments and eras in American history where you don't see a lot of flags. You don't hear the anthem. It's just it's just different. You know, we all know that, you know, prior to 11, prior to 9-11, you didn't see a lot of American flags. There wasn't a super amount of patriotism, you know, going back to the 1970s with Watergate and Vietnam. But when 9-11, you know, literally hit um, the next day. You saw flags on cars, on highways. The patriotism was 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 unprecedented for that time period. And so, certainly after the War of eighteen twelve, you get this heightened sense of patriotism, of nationalism, um, and even what becomes known as American exceptionalism. In some southern states, slave auctions were held on the Fourth of July, and also in the South, pro-slavery whites try to strip the holiday of its political. Meaning, uh, making the holiday, you write, a carnival of food, drink, and entertainment rather than a celebration of revolutionary people, events, and ideas. And it sounds to me a lot like today. 
Um, and historians, uh-huh. historians smarter than me have written about how, you know, what really makes a national holiday is once it becomes official, that shortly thereafter, people sort of forget its meaning. And, you know, Thanksgiving is about football and turkey today, not, you know, colonists and Native Americans coming together and breaking bread. The 4th of July is about fireworks. It's about barbecue. It's about baseball. And I love all that stuff. Um, but I think in the, you know, that that's sort of an antebellum American Southern tradition, at least the 4th of July, whereas in the early 1800s, Northerners are, are finding a new appreciation of the 4th and in particular the Declaration of Independence and that crazy radical idea uh, that all men are created equal. Mm-hmm. And, and, and white Southerners are terrified of that <laughs> information getting out to an, you know, even though the a Southerner wrote it. Yeah, for sure. And even though, you know, and, and owner. This, right. Whites are in the minority in, in the deep South. Right. And so slaves on their plantations, you know, there's debates about do we allow slaves to come to the 4th of July, you know, events? Do we allow them to observe? Do we want a political, do we want someone coming to our town, our plantation, our village to give a rendition or a re-reading of the declaration? And by the 1840s and 50s, the answer is a resounding no. And I've read many documents and um, pamphlets and books and, and manuscripts and letters and correspondence for these white slave owners like, nah, the 4th of July is not really about freedom. It's not really about the Declaration. It's just a good time to get together in the summer. I mean, honestly. And so you really do see like it is depoliticized. Um, I, I think I find, you know, and argue in my book that they fail to try to make it a depoliticized holiday. They fail to keep the message of equality and all men are created equal. They, they, they fail to keep that idea from the hearts and minds of the people they literally you know, hold in captivity. And weren't there many instances of escapes and uprisings on the holiday, uh, on that day in particular, because it was a celebration of American values? Right. And, you know, and and there there will, I'm sure, be pushback because a lot of times, you know, fugitive slaves, they would typically escape on a Sunday or Saturday evening. A lot of enslaved people had Sundays off. And so if Fourth of July fell on a Sunday, that would be convenient. Also, Fourth of July would oftentimes be a day work for laborers and, you know, slave owners as well. And so during the parties and drinking and celebration, slaves might slip away. But I've also found concrete evidence that regardless of what day of the week the fourth falls on, there are slaves who are escaping and, and they, you know, some of them publish their accounts later in life, you know, sometimes five years later, sometimes three or four decades later. And they say, you know, I escaped or I ran away on the fourth of July because I was inspired by the declaration. You know, William Wells Brown is a famous abolitionist, one of the United States' first African, maybe the first African-American novelist. And years later, his daughter, after hearing all these stories about when he had escaped from slavery, and she says it was a 4th of July, you know, celebration that he was allowed to witness in St. Louis when he was enslaved. And he heard a U.S. senator read the Declaration of Independence and give this incredible speech and she quotes her husband saying, from that day forward, I resolved to be free. So he didn't run away on the 4th, but it was hearing the Declaration of Independence, the, the, the hypocrisy of that, that, that idea of freedom and equality in a slave city, in a slave state, that just sort of convinced him, I'm sure among other things, that I need to do whatever it takes to escape from slavery. So yeah, it, there's, there's a ton of evidence that Enslaved people are really taking motivation. They're being inspired by these radical ideas that are you know, supposed to be celebrated every 4th of July. So you're arguing in this book that our nation's iconic national symbols and images fueled and shaped slave and anti-slavery resistance before the Civil War. A hundred percent. Absolutely. And I think... You know, in American history, in current politics, we tend to think of patriotism and nationalism as sort of a thing that's being embraced by the right of the political spectrum. And, you know, we think of Christianity, evangelical Christianity, we tend today to think of the Christian right. Like that's a phrase that everyone can sort of understand. But then there's also a lot of people who talk and study the Christian left. And I think of Martin Luther King and how he took Christianity you know, and he took the radical components of Christianity to fight for black freedom, among other things. And I see a similar thing here before the Civil War. It is 
not only enslaved African-Americans across the South, but their white and free black allies in the North, sometimes out West, they really are the ones in this time period who are embracing America's founding ideals. And we've already talked about how white Southerners are sort of rejecting um, the radicalism of the Declaration uh, by the 1830s, 40s, and 50s. In the North, we see the opposite. And so it's not just the slaves themselves, but it's their allies across the North saying, like, listen, we have all of these great ideas. The United States could be the most incredible place the world had ever seen, but for slavery. So not only will slaves use those ideas as fuel to fight for freedom, but across the North, they're going to find, you know, quite frankly, generations of of anti-slavery zealots, you know, abolitionist radicals on occasion, and they will join the fight for freedom inspired by the very same things. So there's not a rejection. You would think possibly they could reject these ideals because they make a mockery of freedom, because there is no freedom for black people in the South. But instead, some of these people, they, they, they still have such faith in America's ideals that they embrace them. And, and I, I refer to this there's a contrast between rhetorical nationalism, the rhetoric of freedom, right, which can mean nothing, um, looks good, sounds good. But then there's the revel the real nationalism, the revolutionary nationalism, where if you take the declaration at its word, if you take Patrick Henry at his word, when he says, give me liberty or give me death, uh, enslaved people, like, man, one of the coolest things I come across, I have come across, are the dozens and dozens of accounts of slaves trying to escape, slaves uprising. Slaves taking their own lives because they refuse to be enslaved any longer. And, and, and in some cases, as they go to their grave, they cry out, give me liberty or give me death. Liberty or death or some variation of that phrase. Mm -hmm. And I say frequently, you know, I don't think that's what Patrick Henry envisioned. I certainly don't think that's what Patrick Henry, a slave owner, wanted. Um, but that's what happens with his words. And so it's, it's just a fascinating sort of twist on, you know, you better be careful what you say, because it, it, words can be very, very powerful. Well, there are so many ironies in this story with people like Thomas Jefferson and Patrick Henry. Uh, right. Not even, I don't know whether they even recognized the, uh, you know, what they were doing and, and how they were, what they were saying went against how they were living. Yeah. And, you know, and, and that's the great debate, you know, where are the founders on this issue? Roughly half of the men who signed the Constitution are slave owners, you know, so you could argue roughly half George of the, Washington. Right. And, you know, and, and Washington, we know he was very conflicted. And, you know, he does go to his grave in 1799 and he, you know, he frees the slaves that he owns on his deathbed through his will and you know, basically things of that nature. Jefferson seems less conflicted. Patrick Henry far less conflicted. So they go back and forth and it's really hard to pin it down. And, you know, but I will tell you, there's such a, rightfully, there's such a tendency today to just sort of throw out everything the founding fathers did because of these, these, these moral crimes they committed. Although they were crimes that were acceptable at the time, today, obviously, they're no longer acceptable. But I still... When push comes to shove, I, I give Patrick Henry credit. I give Jefferson some credit, at least, for at least putting on paper these what were then really not only radical, but treasonous ideas. And so, yes, maybe Patrick Henry didn't envision enslaved people in 50 years using his words to fight and kill for freedom. But maybe somewhere in the back of his mind, you know, he he, he understood that these 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 words would the meaning of these words maybe would change throughout time and they wouldn't just affect you know powerful elite white men that maybe it would spread and trickle down to maybe african americans to women um we have no proof of that but i but i like to think it's it's possible certainly for jefferson because he can be so anti-slavery in so many of his speeches and writings in his personal life he's 100 pro-slavery but at least politically he comes across as anti-slavery and he does worry about down the road when and if emancipation comes, how and if black and white Americans will get along. So I'm pretty sure when he says some of these radical ideas, he does think, at least in the back recesses of his mind, of what this will mean for black people in his time and black people long after he, Jefferson, is gone. And we're still living with the legacy of that. Oh, very much so. And, and certainly, obviously, in the last couple of years with the rise of nationalism, um, the rise of white nationalism, you know, uh, think of Europe. Resurgence of the KKK. 
Yeah, right. And you know, and it's just so all of these ideas, again, there's ebb and flow in American and world history. And we are certainly in a moment. And I think I'm happy to be a, among a cohort of historians who are realizing that whether or not we like nationalism or promote nationalism at home or abroad, um, boy, we understand it is a powerful historical force. You know, just like race, you know, just like gender, just like democracy. Like these are his powerful historical forces. And nationalism was a very big deal in the early 19th century. And I think that's sort of what my book is just, you know, on, on a macro level. It's just saying that, you know, the, 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 the rise of American nationalism and patriotism, it was not relegated to free Americans, to the halls of Congress or the North, right? That even, even on Southern cotton plantations, um, these patriotic and nationalistic sentiments, they resonated, which I, I find absolutely fascinating. My guest on today's Leonard Lopez at Large is Matthew J. Clavin, T-L-A-V-I-N. His latest book, Symbols of Freedom, Slavery and Resistance Before the Civil War from NYU Press. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Weren't images of the slave trade being carried in front of the Capitol with the American flag waving published in anti-slavery publications? Yeah, very much so. And what you see in the early, you know, the early, the American abolitionist movement, you know, arguably existed prior to the 1830s, but it's not until 1831, 32, 33, you really get what becomes you know, we recognize today as an organized abolition movement where you have actual organizations, you have fundraising, membership drives and things of that nature. And so in the 1830s and 40s, there's an explosion of, of publications, almost like a newspaper war, a pamphlet mm -hmm. war, a print war. Um, and so what abolitionists and anti-slavery activists begin to do is not only so with the technology of the penny press steam engine printing presses and all this engraving you know artistic illustration technology they start to they start to make the american flag the us capitol just certain other images and symbols you know center to a lot of their illustrations a lot of their visual propaganda if you will and so you know my book starts with there's a very very famous story in the early 19th century at least where a coffle of slaves is being marched in front of the U.S. Capitol. And there's about 10 black men in chains. And one of the slaves stops or pauses in front of the U.S. Capitol. And with his arms chained, he lifts them up and literally begins to sing what was then the national anthem. And that's interesting enough. But if you know the lyrics of the original national anthem, uh, which was called Hail Columbia, um, the, the last words are basically give me liberty or give me death or death over liberty. And so here is an enslaved black man, arms and chains, being marched to another slave market or auction. And he not only understands, right, politically uh, the national anthem, he knows its words and he's defiant and he can't escape. But he just takes this incredible political stance and he, and he points towards the, the U.S. Capitol. At least one report says there's a flag hanging there. And, and he sings this song and all these congressmen, they take notice. And that's how we know about this. Well, 20 years later, and this story had survived in the print culture of the time, but in the early 1830s, abolitionist groups, they illustrate, you know, a version or two of this scene. And it hmm. becomes, if you know the revolutionary era and there's the Boston massacre and everyone knows that picture uh, printed by... Uh, Paul Revere, actually, who was an engraver, and, and that picture of the Boston Massacre, it becomes very famous. And all over the 13 colonies, that's the way people then understood the Boston Massacre. It looks like a bunch of innocent American colonial citizens, subjects, are being gunned down, you know, by, by British soldiers. And we know the massacre was far more complicated. The, the, the American mob probably started it, throwing snowballs, et cetera, et cetera. So it's powerful propaganda that helped spur on the American Revolution. Same thing here in the 1830s. Uh, despite some of the inaccuracies in the engraving, it is crystal clear that slave owners are kind of running the nation's capital. They are making a mockery of the U.S. Capitol, the so-called Temple of Freedom. They're making a mockery of the American flag. 
They're making a mockery of the national anthem. They're making a mockery of American freedom. And so I personally am a visual learner. Um, I know a lot of students today are still visual learners, probably maybe even more than I am, and I am to a great extent. So I really am just sort of blown away by this image and these images, and I can certainly imagine how resonant they were with people who were already leaning, leaning in an anti-slavery direction. And it's very easy to imagine many Americans reading, maybe purchasing, probably putting on their wall this image that they sort of transformed from being moderate on the issue of slavery to, to full-blown abolitionist. So these images- and you've included a few of those images in your book. Yeah, and I'm so I, you know, the book is published with uh, New York University Press, and and I'm so proud of them, and the the book jacket I love, and it's it it shows the first African American winner of the Congressional Medal of Honor, William H. Carney, a very famous picture where he's holding this ragged and torn flag that he saved in South Carolina. The movie Glory is basically based on William H. Carney's effort to save the flag, but the whole book is filled with some of these pictures of how slave owners kind of abused these symbols. You know, they used to make, and this hurts to say, they used to make slave coffles march across the South, and one or two of the slaves at the front of the coffle would be forced to hold an American flag. And, and I can, literally can't imagine a more insult, just, you know, disgusting insult to the idea of freedom and certainly American freedom this country was supposed to be born in freedom, right, and equality. And you have enslaved people being marched across the land, separated from families, carrying an American flag? That, that it offends me, and I know it offended, you know, abolitionists in the 19th century. Now, on July 5th, 1852, Frederick Douglass, who had escaped slavery in Maryland, delivered a two-hour speech, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July, and which he underscored American exceptionalism as aspirational and offered right. a plan for the, the Republic's redemption if it lived up to its claim of liberty and equality for all. Who was right. in his audience? A lot of what's interesting, it's a fascinating story. He's in Rochester, and a year earlier, a, a group called like the Rochester Female or the Rochester Anti-Slavery Sewing Club and so what it is, it's a group of women and anyone who knows about American abolitionism, a lot of people like Douglas, William Lloyd Garrison, Wendell Phillips, these prominent men were at the face of abolitionism. For, for obvious reasons, women didn't have the right to vote. Um, men were supposed to be involved in the public sphere. Women were relegated to the domestic sphere, at least that's the way Although it was Although the to suffrage be. movement was linked in many cases. Right. And this is where the, this is where that momentum begins to grow, where women begin to shatter that boundary and they begin to you know, enter the public sphere. And so, you know, they're calling themselves the sewing society, but they're also an anti-slavery society. And they're 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 the backbone of the abolition movement. They are the workforce behind Douglas's you know, public appearances. And so they wanted him to give a Fourth of July speech. He intended to do it the year before, but he was ill and he lost his voice and things of that nature. So the following year. Uh, he decides to give this speech, and in, it's at the biggest hall in Rochester. So it's mostly, if not all, you know, anti-slavery or abolitionist supporters. You know, the difference being anti-slavery, right. you're just opposed to slavery. But abolitionists, you're willing to fight to get rid of slavery. But the real core of the – well, the, the motivation for the invitation to get Douglas to give the speech was he very famously changed his mind on the Constitution. Prior to the 1850s, most – abolitionists were very much critics, you know, harsh critics of the U.S. Constitution. They called it a pro-slavery document, a pro-slavery text, and quite honestly, they, they denounced it because it is very pro-slavery and pro-slavery in some of its its measures. It also has some anti-slavery components. It doesn't mention the word slave. It refers to enslaved people as persons. And you know, Douglas and a small other cadre of abolitionists by the early 1850s they switch. And they start to proclaim that the Constitution is an anti-slavery text. So the purpose of the speech is to like sort of officially announce and defend Douglas's newfound love of the Constitution. So it's a, and he really he he really upsets a lot of his friends. Um, a lot of his friends will turn their backs on him after this. He will lose the support of a lot of really powerful anti-slavery organizations. 
but he's undaunted. You know, this guy is as courageous as they come. And quite frankly, he doesn't care. He now thinks the Constitution is a weapon in his arsenal to fight against slavery and slave owners. And then ultimately, he gives this incredible, powerful speech. It's incredibly stirring and motivational. But the point of the or the thesis of the speech is not only that the Constitution opposes slavery, but it's also this idea that the United States of America is an extraordinary place. No other place on earth is like it. No other place on earth shares its radical founding ideals of freedom and equality, but for slavery. And Douglas, you know, he he spent many of his lives enslaved. He was beaten. He was tortured. Family members were killed. You know, relatives remained in slavery as he gave this speech. Yet here's a guy who has not lost faith in the United States. I mean, it's really extraordinary. Mm-hmm. And and so once this speech is over, standing ovation, the, the 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 speech is published, and his celebrity just grows larger and larger. Well, didn't radical abolitionists criticize Douglas because he believed in dialogue and making alliances across racial and ideological lines? Not necessarily for that. I mean, they really when he but he gets, said I would unite with anybody to do right and with nobody to do wrong. Yeah, for sure. But what really upsets people about Douglas is is also with his new faith in the Constitution comes a new faith in the American political process. And so I think of William Lloyd Garrison, editor of The Liberator, uh, Douglas's early mentor. And Garrison is one of the leaders of the movement, uh, certainly in the first two decades of the movement. And he is utterly opposed not only to not voting because he doesn't like that, you know, he thinks the democratic process is poisoned by slavery. But he also is arguing, as do many abolitionists, they're arguing for separation from the South, that the South is so poisoned by slavery, it is so cancerous that we should separate. And so to your point, Douglas is like, no, like we're, we're going to keep this country together. We're going to get rid of slavery. And I will work with anybody to make sure that this happens. And so by the 1850s, you really mid 1840s, it starts. You start to have a lot of fracturing in the abolition movement. And when the smoke clears by the end of the 1850s, Douglas is arguably at the top of the pile. Like 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 the abolition movement comes around and to a great extent to his point of view on the Constitution, on voting, the political process, which helps explain the rise of the Republican Party, uh, extreme support by abolitionists for Abraham Lincoln. And so there's this a long trajectory here, but Douglas is at the forefront of this uh, meandering path that the American abolition movement travels. Did Lincoln, was he very aware of Douglas? Very much so. Yeah, and it's it's on some level he was annoyed by Douglas, certainly at the beginning of the Civil War, because Douglas is, I mean, his voice grows even louder with the start of the war. And he also has mixed feelings about Lincoln. He thinks he's better than the competition. He's the, you know, best of a couple of evils, but he is anti-slavery. And so you can't take that away from Lincoln. He's very much opposed to slavery philosophically, uh, politically. He just, like many people believes as president, he or the government has no constitutional power to get rid of slavery where it already exists. So over time, really in a couple of years, first two years of the Civil War, Lincoln comes to not only appreciate Douglas, but welcome him in the White House to help transition this war from a war over union to a war over slavery. And Douglas and many of his allies, they come to embrace Lincoln's moderation And as Lincoln becomes more and more radical in his own dealings, then Douglas and his allies, they become really partners of Abraham Lincoln in this whole process, violent process during the war of getting rid of slavery. You're listening to Let It Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Ooh, freedom. Oh, freedom, oh, freedom over me, and before I'd be a slave, I'd be buried in my grave, and go home to my Lord and be free. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Matthew J. Clavin. 
If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of the book we've been discussing, his book, Symbols of Freedom, Slavery and Resistance Before the Civil War. To do that, just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show. We'd be happy to send you a copy. That's give and the number 2WBAI.org or 212-209-2950. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Thorpe paid at large, and we thank you very much. And return now to Matthew J. Claven, whose latest book, the one we're discussing, is Symbols of Freedom, Slavery and Resistance Before the Civil War from NYU Press. He uh, is a professor of history at the University of Houston. Now, um, Harriet Tubman was one of the most famous of the fugitive slaves. She had also escaped slavery in Maryland uh, in, in 1849. Right. And I think, again, just something I... I'm a Baltimore native, so I grew up on Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman. And when I started this book, I knew that I would have a whole chapter on Douglass's, it's, it's arguably his most famous speech, that 4th of July speech. And then I had found long ago in grad, grad school that over 4th of July weekend in 1845, as many as 75 enslaved men from Southern Maryland, again, over the 4th of July weekend, they tried to escape to Pennsylvania in freedom. They marched through the nation's capital. There's a big gunfight. And most are re-enslaved. However, some escaped and made their way to Canada. But the point is, when I sat down and started to write this book, it had a real leaning towards men. Uh, men were rebelling. Men were plotting to rebel. Men were running away. Men And men, statistically, were able to run away more often than enslaved women. So they did. The, 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 the history shows. But every month and eventually year that I wrote this book and continued to research, the, the the gender equity jumped off the page. And this idea of nationalism and slave resistance, it crossed gender lines. And you know Harriet Tubman is the most famous, but there's many accounts in the book of not only enslaved women, but female abolitionists uh, demonstrating just like their male counterparts, how much they are attracted to and impressed by and inspired by the ideals of American freedom. You know, Harriet Tubman specifically, she always carries a gun when she comes back into the South mm -hmm. to help other people escape slavery. And she makes it very clear one, at one point she's interviewed and she says, there's two things I'm guaranteed in this country, and that's death or liberty. And she's going to have one or the other. And also, which I find just absolutely incredible, is, you know, John Brown, the white radical, elderly white abolitionist, who pretty much starts the Civil War in 1859 when he and a small group of black and white radicals, they attack Harper's Ferry. You know, the story is well known. Well, a couple months ahead of time, he had met with Douglas and he also met with Harriet Tubman. And, you know, and she's a huge supporter of this idea and she will assist in fundraising efforts. And then when the two of them in Canada are trying to think of a perfect date to launch this rebellion, it's Harriet that says, the 4th of July, and I think her phrase is, is the best day to, to raise the mill. And so that's an expression used in the early 19th century. So it's actually a formerly enslaved black woman who convinces John Brown to launch his rebellion on the 4th of July, 1859. Uh, John Brown is famously a little scatterbrained, and he's running across the north. He's escaping authorities. He's fundraising. He's not the best organizational leader. And so he misses the date by a couple of months. But the, the fact still remains that he was allied with Tubman and she supported violent revolution. And she thought July 4th would be the perfect day to rebel. And she recruited supporters for his uh, John Brown's 1859 raid on Harper's Ferry, didn't she? Yes. And there's, you know, so many fugitive slaves escaped in their early to mid 19th century. And, and with the Underground Railroad, those numbers multiply in the 1850s and thousands. How, how relevant is she to the creation of the Underground Railroad? Very significant, at least on what I, what I would call the eastern line of the Underground Railroad. Uh, she is 
a big close partner of William Still. And William Still has a Philadelphia office where this is sort of the mecca of the Eastern line of the Underground Railroad. And she is an associate with him. So she corresponds with him. She literally brings escaped slaves to his office, the anti-slavery offices in Philadelphia, and they will help get these people further north off into Canada. So she's as relevant as anyone else, as important a figure. Now, unlike other conductors of the Underground Railroad, her story is not well documented. She is literally risking her life day after day, month after month, year after year, returning to the South. I mean, her own life is in jeopardy, and she helps dozens of people escape. So for she obvious had reasons. She on her life. And on oh, for sure. Health. And bounties. And she, and was, bounties. she often had bouts of illness. So she uh, was very really much so. quite brave. Yeah, she was beaten as most enslaved people were beaten as a child, as an adult, and she had serious um, physical and mental health problems as a result of that, not only the, 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 the physical torture, but the mental abuse that she endured. And, and, and like Douglas, she's, she, she, she's undaunted. It doesn't seem to affect her. She's in pain, mental, physical, and otherwise, and it doesn't stop her. But, but her, her accomplishments aren't as well documented as other conductors because, for obvious reasons, the, the authorities were out to get her at every turn. Although that she was nicknamed Moses. Interestingly, yeah, given a man, man's name. Uh, and after the Civil War began, she worked for the Union Army. Oh, not only did she work for the Union Army, she is on boats and flotillas with Union soldiers. And she leads them, if not into battle, actually, she leads them into these raids into the the coastal Carolina regions where there's a, you know a huge majority of black people and she is sent out almost as a scout and she's carrying a weapon and so she is hmm. she is as militant as an abolitionist as you will find in American history I mean she really is something else and then after the Civil War didn't she become active in the women's suffrage movement uh, and and a number of abolitionists did um, they they obviously saw links between uh, the, the the two situations. Yeah, very much so. And, you know, once slavery is gone, and it's not really the Emancipation Proclamation, it's the 13th Amendment. Um, and although we still have forms of slavery and captivity um, trafficking today in America, it's, it's not legal. It's not institutionalized. So once you have the legal abolition of slavery, it opens the door for a lot of all these social activists. They belong to all these groups and organizations. It's men and women. And now you have all these women who are so empowered. They are emboldened. They helped get rid of slavery. Not only did they help, they kind of led the movement. Uh, Harriet Tubman did lead the movement. And so by the 1860s and 70s, with slavery gone, there's a new opportunity. Let's fight more. And they've been doing this since the early 1800s, but now it's like we have the time to focus on women's rights. And while suffrage is at the top of the list, it's just women's rights in general. And now they don't, generally speaking, abandon the idea of black civil rights. They're still fighting for that. But the idea of fighting for women's rights, that, that grows and becomes a priority more than before. You write about some other people who are probably a little less well-known, like right. David Walker and Henry Highland Garnett. Right. They yeah, justified their call for violent slave resistance by citing the Declaration of Independence, which affirmed both the right and duty of Americans to overthrow their oppressors and to ensure justice for all. Yeah, and that's another thing I find. And anyone who studies and writes about American abolitionism, they know that black men and women were at the forefront of the movement. And, you know, they really had no choice. Many of them are escaped slaves. Many of them have family and friends that they left behind or are still, you know, enslaved. And so it's they, they have no option, quite quite frankly. Um, and, and they're going to fight for the end of slavery. They're going to fight to free uh, black people, whether they live in Philadelphia, the Western Reserve of Ohio, or in Canada. And so black people are at the forefront of this movement. And when you have these loud black voices like Garnett, like David Walker, and they repeatedly put into their speeches this revolutionary interpretation, you know, this this realistic, concrete interpretation of the Declaration and all these founding ideals. And what is really fascinating is this idea that as a true American citizen, you are not only 
justified in using violence to fight for freedom. After all, that's the American Revolution. The United States was born in revolution and blood. But there's also an idea, and you mentioned it, that you are obligated. You know, as an American citizen, you are obligated to not only defend the republic, but to defend freedom. And not just for yourself, but for other Americans. And so as we live in the 21st century and we have an all-volunteer military and as people have a very mixed relationship with their flag and their country, this really does harken to a different time where even these black men, many of them formerly enslaved and, and women, they, they, they really have not lost faith in the republic and its radical ideas. And it's not the you know, conservative ideals that they're embracing. It's the radical ideas of, of fighting for freedom um, and liberty for all people. Now, we've talked about people escaping to Canada. They also went to Mexico. And uh, and uh, that's a major part of American history as well, because Texas uh, was uh, involved in that whole thing. I don't know how much you want to talk about that. Well, but, I uh, my third book <laughs> was actually my second book was a book on fugitive slaves escaping to Spanish Florida and eventually territorial Florida. Uh, because of its location on the Gulf of Mexico. My third book was on, it's called The Battle of Negro Fort, which looks at uh, hundreds of escaped slaves who made their way to Spanish Florida, joined the British during the War of 1812, and fought for freedom there. So one thing I've done just throughout the years and all my scholarship is I've tried to sort of change the map of the Underground Railroad, change the map of the history of fugitive slaves. And while the majority uh, from the South tried to make their way to the North, they often tried to go west, and they oftentimes tried to go south mm. to Texas, to the Gulf of Mexico, to the Caribbean, you know, maybe over to England. It just anywhere where freedom reigned is where black people were willing to try to get to. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is Matthew J. Claven. His latest book, Symbols of Freedom, Slavery, and Resistance Before the Civil War from NYU Press. This is W. BAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Uh, Juneteenth is a federal holiday celebrated on June 19th. Uh, it became official when President Joe Biden signed the Juneteenth National Independence Act into law in 2021. What does it celebrate in uh, exactly? It, it took years, quite frankly, for word, or at least months initially, where you, depending on where you are in the South, it took months, in some cases years, for word of the Emancipation Proclamation to reach the ears of enslaved people. And so Texas is arguably one of the last places that word of emancipation gets to Black Southerners. And when it finally comes, it's in June, I believe 1865, and then uh, slaves begin to celebrate that day in Texas. And so that was originally a Texas sort of emancipation celebration. And now what Juneteenth represents is really a celebration, a holiday of black emancipation um, on any day of the year. And so sort of the end of slavery, I think, is what the holiday uh, is, is expected to mean moving forward. Well, should we be celebrating July 18th, 1863, when the 54th Massachusetts Volunteer Regiment stormed the Confederate battery at Fort Wagner, South Carolina, the beginning of the Civil War. It sounds good to me. And that is, you know, I sometimes... That was July 18th. Right. <laughs> we, listen, I would support that. I think, you know, Lincoln can be faulted in his Emancipation Proclamation for the document reading almost like a parking ticket, you know, for a man who is just world-renowned for his rhetorical flourishes, his oratory, his mind... His, his use of words, there's no rival. Uh, but the Emancipation Proclamation is a boring legal document. That being said, if you read the fine print of the Emancipation Proclamation, it says not only are enslaved people now free, but they are legally entitled to enlist in the U.S. military. And so the document, as you read it at face value, doesn't seem very revolutionary, although the moment calls for it. To Lincoln's credit, he allows these people to fight. And many of them want to fight. And it's well known then, it's well known today, that one of the best ways of proving your legitimacy or your deserving of citizenship rights, full political civil rights, is military service. 
So for Lincoln to do this, and a couple months later, we get the, the battle at Fort Wagner that you're talking about. Um, Lincoln deserves a lot of credit for this. And by July 1863, um, hundreds and eventually over 200,000 former slaves will fight in the Army and Navy for the United States against the Confederacy. And it is an absolutely revolutionary moment in U.S. history, not unlike the American Revolution 80 years earlier. Well, it's been about over 150 years since the beginning of the Civil War. And yet uh, the U.S. flag, the Fourth of July, historical sites are still being contested. Mm -hmm. uh, did you intend this book to remind us that symbols are living artifacts whose power is derived from the meaning with which we imbue them? I, I, I don't think intentionally, no. I think... I think I do a good job as a as a as a trained historian, and I just do a lot of research and I find things that are profound and I tell their story. I like to think of myself as kind of just a vessel for some of these stories. But as I write this book in the eight you know, the, the 2000 and teens, um, heading into 2020s, there are a lot of things on the news. There are a lot of things on my cell phone. I'm communicating with people, text messaging, and the the the, the linkages are undeniable. So I certainly did not write the book to make it sort of fit into the current uh, dialogue and discourse hmm. on national symbols and the flag and patriotism and stuff. But boy, does it, I think, uh, help sort of make things a little bit more clear. And, you know, so why it's, do you it's think just... these things have survived all these years? Uh, well, not... And it gives me the sense, I have the sense that it's going to continue into the far future. Yeah. And I think, you know, maybe another for just macro idea of this book is just, you know, even moving beyond the issue of slavery and anti-slavery and slave resistance. It's just that these symbols carry great weight. And, you know, one of the parts, a, a sub theme of my book is how, you know, in England and in Europe, these abolitionists, they, they've gotten rid of slavery in most parts of Europe. They've gotten rid of slavery in their colonies, yet they're trying to help American abolitionists. And they're making comments about the American flag being abused by slave owners. They're making a mockery of the American eagle, depicting it as this ravenous predatory bird, not this, you know, this creature of freedom. And so there's just the, these symbols really, really matter. So American symbols not only matter here, they matter globally. And they are probably always going to be contested. Maybe they should always be contested. But one thing you certainly take away from this book that both in the 19th century and today, these symbols really, really matter. And people will not only fight for them, they will die for them, they will kill for them. And it doesn't get more powerful than that. We're pretty much out of time, but in uh, the... The last minute or two, is there anything you want to add? No, I, well, I would tell you, thank you so much for having me on. Um, getting a historian to talk about their book and make them stop is very difficult. But I very much enjoyed the opportunity. And I hope people pick up the book and I hope they learn that, you know, things were probably a little bit different in the era of slavery than they probably think. I think people don't still appreciate uh, the willingness, the eagerness with which enslaved people fought for their own freedom and I think people have sort of forgotten how there were people, a lot of people in the United States who helped these people. And they put their own lives on the line to, to, to really fight for American freedom. I've been speaking with Matthew J. Claven, professor of history at the University of Houston, the author of a number of books. And the one that we've been discussing, Symbols of Freedom, Slavery and Resistance Before the Civil War, published by NYU Press. Thank you so much for being on our show today. Thank you so much. I'm a big fan. I appreciate it. And that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program or would like to hear more about one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our over 800 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which is Surpassed Ways, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is Leonard Lopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I'd like to ask you uh, to support BAI to keep the station coming to you and the show coming to you. Uh, we are going through a really rough time right now and have been since the pandemic started. Uh, and and uh, there are moments when we wonder whether we're going to survive. So 
We hope that uh, our listeners will come through to us, for us, uh, and we're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give2wbai.org right now. That's give and the number 2wbai.org or 212-209-2950 because we need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content information you usually don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopez at large right now can receive a copy of the book that we've been discussing, Symbols of Freedom, Slavery and Resistance Before the Civil War by Matthew J. Clavin. So why not make that call right now? 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy for $10, $15, $20, dollars a month or whatever you're comfortable with. And as long as you're comfortable doing it, um, it allows us to plan for the future. And we will say thank you with a BAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more. But either way, I hope you'll call right now because BAI relies 100% on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants, which allows us to be completely free speech radio. So if you tune in regularly to this program, why not listen? You appreciate what we do by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 to play your part in keeping this historic station the only one on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored, alive and thriving through the attack deductible support. Thanks for listening. See you soon.